This morning I, I thought before I head back into Third John, I would take just a couple messages. Uh, one of them on clarifying the gospel. And I, and I really believe that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, should be the most precious message that we could ever hear. It's the most precious message we can ever tell anyone. And so it should always be dear to our our heart, and we should always have something to say, if called upon. We should have something to share with someone on what God's done in our life. And so, from time to time, I think we have to look back at the gospel, because it is so important. Not only to know it ourselves, but to make sure that we ourselves are Christians, that we are believers, that we know what the good news is. So the question I have for you is, do you really believe? Is Jesus Christ your Redeemer, your Savior, your Substitute, your Sacrifice, your Lord, your God? Is He? Or could it be that Jesus Christ is just an add-on to everything else you were believing before? Sometimes that is the case. That's why we have to keep going back and looking at the Word of God and asking ourselves the question, what is the Gospel? And I hope you have not been the kind of person who just comes to church every week and listens to the Word of God preached over and over again, but you do nothing to act upon it. You do nothing about what you hear. Because the Bible does admonish us not only to be hearers, but to be doers of the Word, right? You are responsible for the doing. Now, these are very probing Questions, they're, they're sobering questions. They're questions we need to ask, though. We need to be thinking about these things all the time for ourselves and for others who come to us and say, you know what, I'm not sure if I'm really a believer. I'm not sure if I'm really a Christian. I'm not sure if I died today, I'd go to heaven and be with God. I'm not sure. Help me to be sure. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 8 for a moment. Just for an example where the Scripture teaches there's such a thing as non-saving faith. It is found in chapter 8, if you look at verse number 9. It's talking about a man man named Simon. And if you look at verse number 9, it says there, Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city, and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. Now, it tells us here that he was listening to Peter preach the gospel, and he was amazed about what he heard. But in verse number 9, it kind of gives us a sense where he was claiming to be someone great, meaning that his motive already was fraudulent. Second thing, in verse number 10 and 11, it says, And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And verse 11, And they were giving him attention, because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Meaning that his power was visible to the people, but it was fraudulent. This guy was a performer. He wanted to find out what else he needed to do to keep the crowds coming. And he wanted more power for his magical arts. That's what he wanted. But I want you to notice in verse 18... Because he did something. Something happened. It says in verse number 18, or verse 13, even Simon himself believed, this is Acts 8.13, himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, 
as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. This man, Simon, hears the gospel and believes it. And not only that, in obedience to what he heard, he was baptized. Hey, somebody who believes and are baptized, they've got to be a Christian, right? They've got to be. It's all you need. Believe? Did you believe? Believe in Jesus. Yeah. Be baptized. Okay. You got it. It's done. But you know what? His believing was fraudulent. And his baptism was fraudulent. How do I know that? Look at verse number 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the hands of the apostles, he offered them money. Verse 19, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, And Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. See, the, the coming of the Spirit of God only comes if you really believe. Right? Verse number 21, it says, This is Peter's conclusion along with verse number, uh, down to verse number 24, he says this in verse 21, You have no part or portion in this matter. Here it is. For your heart is not right before God. You know what that is? That's a description of an unbeliever. Even though he, was, he believed and was baptized, his believing was fraudulent and his baptism was fraudulent. So the natural meaning of Peter's language is that Simon was on the road to destruction. It is a warning and almost a curse on him. In verse number 22, uh, he says this, Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in a gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Now, sometimes when people hear the gospel and see people's lives changed, they want their life changed. When people come to know Christ and God fixes their marriage, they want their marriage fixed. When they hear someone was rescued from drugs and addiction, they want to be rescued from drugs and addiction. See, when they, when they hear someone was rec rescued from a life of alcoholism, well, they want to be rescued. And so, what they're doing is they're, they're trying to figure out, how can I get a quick fix and fix my life? God should fix my life. But they don't ever receive the gospel. They're looking for a fix. And so, they really never become saved. See, Simon, right here, was thoroughly frightened by Peter's words, but he showed no signs of personal repentance or change of heart. He wants to escape the penalty for his sins, but he doesn't want to call on God himself. If you notice in verse number 24, it says, But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He didn't say... He said, you guys pray for me. She wasn't taking that personal responsibility. So, in a sense, you know what we have here? We have a classic case of non-saving faith. The guy heard the real message. Nothing wrong with the message. Nothing wrong with the messenger. There was something wrong with why he wanted to receive it. See, the motive of his heart was wrong. The intention of his heart was wrong. The power that he wanted was human power and not God's power. And, of course, his believing and his baptism were fraudulent. So, see, there is such a thing as non-saving faith. He was an unconverted man in spite of his profession of faith and baptism. He came to Jesus for the wrong reason and with the wrong intention. So, that's why we have to keep going back and asking ourselves, what is the gospel? So what is the gospel? There are four things I want to mention about the gospel this morning. And it's this. What is the gospel? 
it starts with God and who He is. It, is, it always starts with God and who He is. And here are the very basics. That being a Christian is more than just identifying yourself with a particular religion or a system of belief or even a value system. Being a Christian means that you have embraced what the Bible says about God, mankind, and salvation. But further than that, it is that you received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and are following Him today. And intend to follow Him till you die and obey His Word. Very basically, that, that is what a Christian is. The Gospel then is that God is our holy Creator and our righteous Judge. That's who He is. He is... He is Creator. Contemporary thinking says that man is the product of evolution, but the Bible says that we are created by a personal God to love and serve and enjoy endless fellowship with Him. And the New Testament all over the place tells us that everything was, that was created was created by Jesus. So when we meet Jesus, we are meeting God the Creator. In Scripture, it tells us all things came into being through Jesus, through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has, has come into being. So the point of contact for all human beings, no matter where you live in the world, no matter what your background is, no matter what your religious affiliation is, that the point of contact when it comes to the gospel, is that God created you. Right? So that means you have a connection to Him, whether you like it or not. God created you, Colossians 1.16, for by Him all things were created. And it says both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. And then it says, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Who is it talking about? It's talking about Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the Creator. Also, He owns everything. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 103, verse number 19. So this means that Jesus Christ has authority over your life. And we owe Him, as His creatures, absolute allegiance, obedience, and worship. So He's, he's Creator. We're connected to, them, to Him. We are the creature. And so we are responsible to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we hear the Gospel, we're responsible to Him. And if we are not going to be responsible to Him now in responding to the Gospel, we will be responsible to Him in His other office that the Father has given Him, and that's the office as being a judge. Right? We will be responsible to Him as now the Creator Judge. And of course, then it's too late. Because it's all over then. There's no more opportunity to believe at the same time, remember, the gospel starts with God, is that God is holy and He is a righteous judge. Even now He is. That means God is more morally perfect and pure and set apart from all things. He makes the rules. He sets the standards. In the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, it says in 1.13, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. That's who God is. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. See, that's who God is. So that means because God is holy, that He hates all sin. God hates sin with an absolute hatred. Therefore, He must punish all sin. Why? Because He is the Creator who is the holy and righteous judge. And God must, must judge all sin because he hates all sin. His sin is incompatible with his holiness. He cannot let it in his presence no matter what. So that means God's angry. God is angry against all unrighteousness. God is angry against all wickedness. 
God is angry against all sinners. You know what the Bible says? We're all sinners, right? But anger is not a characteristic that we, we are really familiar with when it comes to God. So we must become aware of it. If you take your Bibles for a quick second and turn to Psalm chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. The Bible says right here, Psalm 5, verse 5 and 6, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. So see, God hates all who cause iniquity, who commit iniquity, who are wicked, who are crooked, who are liars. See, and the word really refers to the inner core of people's hearts. That God hates sin from that which comes from within. And right from the root of our heart, we are sinners. And so that means, see, again, why are we under God's wrath? Because God hates sin, and we are sinners. You can't separate the sin from the sinner. So that means, that means we're already under God's condemnation. God is angry with sinners, and the sword of His wrath already hangs over everyone's head who is guilty of their sin. And unless they repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save them from God's wrath, then they will forever experience His wrath and eternal torment. And the reason why is because He's a holy and righteous judge. And a holy and righteous judge must bring a sentence that is holy and righteous, right? And if someone has rebelled against Him and offended Him, and that's what sin is, then God has to hold that person responsible because He's the judge and because He's the Creator, and that person is His creature. And He didn't live according to God's standards. Love, of course, is a characteristic of God that most people are familiar. But the problem is, is that if we just look at God as love, then we get an improper view of God, and most people who do just look at God as merciful and loving and gracious, they think sometimes God is so full of love that He will overlook all your wrongs. Or they may think, conclude that because there is little evidence in the world of divine judgment on sin and evildoers, they presume it does not exist at all. They come up with things about God. You and I did this before we became Christians. We we came up with things on how we thought God should be. Right? The thinking was, of course, all our own. We never checked the revelation of God's Word as to how God portrayed Himself. We just came up, hopefully we were correct, with the right scenario of how God is, and that's what we concluded. Well, apart from truth, we end up believing our own lies and the lies of Satan. Believe me, if Satan wants you to be wrong on one thing, it's who God is and how God responds to us as his creature. So, see, the gospel, first of all, always starts with God and who He is, and He is the holy creator and righteous judge. But secondly, that leads into the second point of the gospel. What is the gospel? It includes man. It includes man and who he is and what he needs. Who is he? What are we? Well, the Bible says that we are all what? Sinners, right? We are all sinners. And according to the Bible, from birth... We reject God and disobey Him. Everyone is guilty of sin. This is because the standard is not human. The standard is divine. And now, this is obviously, this obviously does not mean that we are incapable at all of performing any kind of acts of kindness and goodness from a human standard. Compared with others, we may be kind and we may be good, but compared to someone who's perfectly kind and perfectly good all the time, 
we fall short of that. And God is perfectly kind and perfectly good and perfectly righteous, and we are not. And He's perfectly holy, and we are not. So therefore, we fall short of God's mark. And that's what Paul was getting to in Romans chapter 3, where it says, For all have sinned, and what? Fall short of the glory of God. Right? We fall short of the standard. We would never be able to make it. But in light of us being sinners, we all sinned in Adam. Why? Because Adam, the first man, was representative of the whole human race. And we can trace your lineage right back to Adam. I think they can. They say they can. But the Bible says that's who you are. And because Adam sinned, it says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spreads to all men, for all have sinned. So the reason why we die is because we're sinners, and the reason why we die in our sinners is because we're connected to Adam. He was the first man. We're his descendants. But that's not the only reason. We sin in our own individual actions, don't we? Our own thoughts. See, the Bible says we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And sin is anything that doesn't please God. Anything that God breaks God's law. God examines our heart. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what you're thinking. He knows your motives. And motives are sometimes hard to judge, but God knows what they are. And so he knows everything that is going on in your heart. He examines our heart. He examines the sins of thought, the sins of words, and the sins of deeds. Through and through, we are sinners, and God sees it all. Now, because of that, the Bible says we deserve only one penalty. We deserve death. We are already going to die physically. Right? Unless the Lord comes and takes you out soon, and you're still alive. You'll be caught up together with the Lord, right? But we're, gonna, we're dying physically right now. As we sit here, we're dying. He also meant here, though, of course, that death meant separation from God in hell. For the wages of sin is death. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse number 3, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, as the rest. So the wrath of God abides on sinners, and they deserve death, and death means separation from God in hell. That's spiritual death. But we're also spiritually dead right now. When we come into the world, we're spiritually dead. Presently, we are spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, it says there, you were dead, because it's talking about people who are now alive. So, in the past, though, before they trusted Christ, they were dead spiritually. They couldn't respond to God on their own. In fact, if you look over at Romans chapter 5, and verse number 6, it says, We were helpless to save ourselves because of our condition. It says in verse 6, For while we were still helpless, there's what I want to stress there. It's speaking, of course, here that we could not do anything at all in our sinful condition. So, due to our failure to live up to the standard of God's holiness, currently, that person and all who, doesn't, who do not believe in Jesus Christ are under His wrath and upon death will be justly condemned to an eternity in hell. That's what the Bible says. Now, this is what it means to be lost. What, what do I mean? I mean the pathway you thought led to heaven. The pathway of trying to keep the Ten Commandments, trying to follow the golden rule, trying to do the best you can and be the best you can, didn't lead to heaven and does not lead to heaven at all. 
But that's probably the philosophy of most people. See, when they come or you come to the end of these things, you find that the way you were hoping that would lead you to heaven didn't lead there at all. In fact, when you come to the end of the road, you find out there's a big sign that says bridge out. Have you ever done one of those things on a country road? You knew where you were going. But you came to the only bridge that there was there that only could fit one car. And when you got there, it was all dismantled. And it said bridge out. And you had no clue where to go next. That's how it is. See, on our own philosophy and our own wisdom, that's where we end up. We end up at the end of a road that says bridge out. Can't get over to the other side. You see, you thought you knew the way to heaven, but you really didn't. My friends... If one does not know how to get to his destination, he is or she is, by definition, lost. Do you understand that? If you don't know how to get to God, you're lost. If you don't know the requirements on being made right with God, you're lost. And a lost person has a great need. They either need to be found or shown the right way, the way to God, right? That's what they need. That's my need. That was my need in 1977. That's your need. That's the need of every human being on the earth because they're responsible to the Creator. They, they have a need. See, when you get the sense that you have that need, then there's hope. That's where the message of the good news comes in. See, we are all in need of God to impart spiritual life to us. That's what we're in need of. Why? We're dead in trespasses and sins. We need to be, as John chapter 3, 3 says, we need to be born again. For you cannot be a Christian without being born again. Being born again is what defines a Christian. Listen to what it says in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. It says, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That means unless you're born again, you can't see where you're going. You can't see how to get to the king of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ. You have no idea how that happens. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, when this phrase is used, is intended to confirm and actually emphasize what follows, and that means we ought to pay careful attention to what Jesus says. The other important phrase in this verse is, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Without being born again, you are unable to enter into the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is really God's saving and transforming reign of course, established by Jesus and is always a synonymous in Scripture with eternal life. That where Jesus is, is the kingdom of God, and eternal life goes with that. And what Jesus is saying then, is that unless you are born again, you are unable to have eternal life with God. What is the alternative of eternal life? The alternative of eternal life is not temporary life but eternal damnation in hell. That's the alternative. The wages of sin is death. So then what Jesus is saying is that unless you are born again, you will face an eternity separated from God in hell. And without being born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, what does Jesus mean by born again? That's probably the question I should ask. Jesus is making entrance into the kingdom comparable to physical birth. He's saying that unless we experience a spiritual birth, we, we, we don't have a chance to have eternal life. We don't have a chance to know how to get to the kingdom of God. We don't have a chance. And please understand, he's saying something to Nicodemus here that's impossible. That's why Nicodemus says, Lord, can I, you know, how can I be born again? Can I go back into my mother's womb and be born? No, Jesus said, I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth, but I'm equating spiritual birth with physical birth. 
in a sense, you, you didn't decide to be born, did you? You had no decision in being born. You didn't decide when you would be born. You didn't decide where you would be born. You didn't decide the race you would be born. You didn't decide the sex you would be. You didn't decide the eye color that you would have. You didn't decide anything with regard to your physical birth. You played no part in it except that you experienced it. That's it. Your birth happened to you. And so Jesus is telling Nicodemus, of course, referring back to numbers, but Nicodemus seemed to get it. And Peter says it like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, God and His mercy needs to cause you to be born again. That's why you need to go to Jesus to see the kingdom of God. That's why you need to go to Jesus to be born again, to be spiritually born into the God's family. You can't go any other place. There's nowhere else to go. He's the creator. He is the judge. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the king of the kingdom. That unless you go to Jesus, you cannot at all enter into the kingdom of God. And just as God caused you to be physically born, so God must call, cause you to be spiritually born. It's all about what God does when you come to Him with your need. And what's your need? You're lost and dead in trespasses and sins, and you're helpless, and you can't do anything. See, unless a person sees that and bears the weight of their sin and the responsibility of their own sin, there's no reason to be saved. They, they don't see the grand need of the truth of the gospel. So listen again to what Jesus says. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We all must be born again if we are to enter into eternal life and be spared eternal destruction that awaits us if we are not spiritually born. So that's impossible. And the only one who could rescue us, rescue lost people, is Jesus Christ. So see, that's the good news. And, and that brings me to my third clarification of the Gospel. What is the Gospel? It continues with God and what He has done in Jesus Christ. Romans says this, but God sent His Son. But God, God still enters into it. And Jesus is the answer and is always the answer. There are at least four reasons. He's fully God and he's fully man. Secondly, he lived a sinless life. He was the sinless Lamb of God that all the prophets spoke of in the Old Testament. He was the Messiah to deliver. But thirdly, more personally dealing with us, he died a death we deserved by dying on the cross. He died as a substitute for sinners. And of course, the fourth thing is he rose from the dead and three days later, conquering death, possessed the authority by God the Father to give eternal life to all those who come to him with their sin, in their lostness, helpless, ungodly, and he, when you ask him, the Bible says, will save you. In other words, God raised up Jesus for our justification to make us right before God, right? And his resurrection proved that Jesus himself was God's son because God the Father accepted the offer, offering and the sacrifice. He did not at all whatsoever reject it, but accepted it. And because of that, then we can be included uh, in the good news as we hear the good news to respond to it. And this is precisely where God's love is demonstrated to sinners like you and I. It is at the cross of Jesus Christ that God demonstrates His great love towards lost sinners. Romans, chapter, I, I love this passage of Scripture, chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. It just simply so clearly says to us, 
But God demonstrates His own love toward us. There was no other love that God could demonstrate. There was no greater way that God could demonstrate His love towards lost sinners who ask Him for salvation than by giving Himself up to be the offering. Giving Himself up to be the substitute on the cross. There's no greater love than this. See, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. So we're saved from God's righteous anger through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. That's the only way you can be rescued. But if a sinner does not see they are lost or under God's wrath or in trouble with God, they will see very little need of the cross and to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There will be no need. They don't see their need. They don't see their lostness. They don't see that they're a sinner under God's wrath. If they don't see that, then they don't see the need for God sending His Son. Usually, when they conclude that, they will settle on their own righteousness. They will think to themselves, I'm not as so bad that God should be angry with me and enough to send me to a place I heard called hell. Surely God won't do that. The Bible is saying, surely God will do that if you don't go to God's solution to your need and problem. And that's the person of Jesus Christ, right? He's not really asking us to affix to a set of doctrines, even though that's coming. He's asking us to believe in Him, a person, to receive Him. And if you would have Christ, then 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us two things. If you would have Christ, this is what happens. And if you're a believer already, this is what's happened to you in your life. The first thing is that the penalty for our sin was accounted to Jesus Christ. It was taken from your account and put on Him. That means there's nothing on your account anymore. See, that is the transfer that happens. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to what? To be sin on our behalf. That Jesus Christ took that sin. For us, He transferred it from our account to His account. That's the great transaction of the, of the cross. That's why the cross is, is always so central to our faith. That's why you cannot remove the cross. You cannot remove what God has done in behalf of sinners. If you do that, you have no salvation. You have no eternal life. You have only eternal damnation. Another way that Paul says it in Colossians chapter 2, he says this, He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. That everything that could have ever been brought up against you before God in His courtroom was taken on Jesus Christ. And when you believe in Him and understand that, it's transferred to His cross. Isn't that just exciting, that, that legal transaction? So, see, the penalty of our sins was accounted to Him. But secondly, this is what else God does. Remember, if you're going to get into the kingdom of God, if you're going to get into heaven, if you're going to get into the presence of God, you have to be 100% perfectly righteous, right? But you have no righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is what else Christ does. There's two major things He does. He not only takes the penalty of our sin and accounts it to Himself, but Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to our account. So when God looks at your account, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, second part of the verse, so that we may so that we might become the righteousness of God, we actually have Christ's righteousness stamped on our account. So when God looks at you, He sees none of the sin. Why? The sin was paid for by Christ. All the condemnation was taken by Christ. All the wrath of God for your sin was poured out on Christ. And then Jesus Christ takes His righteousness and stamps it on your account. So when the Father sees your books open, he sees this. 
perfect righteousness of my Son, Jesus Christ. And that's all received by faith. See, that's what God's done. That's what the Gospel is. See, that's why you can't get around Jesus. You, you can't come in the back door. There's no other plan of salvation than this. And if you are a believer, then you should be thrilled to hear this message as many times as it is preached to you. And be excited about it. And here's the last thing about what the Gospel is. It expresses how man is to respond to God. God doesn't just leave us there and say, I'm not going to tell you how to respond to this. But He tells us that if you would have the penalty for your sins accounted to Him, if you would have Christ's perfect righteousness credited to your account, then this is what you must do. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. After the Gospel was being preached there, it says this, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God. Verse 15, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and this is what he said to them, Repent and believe in the Gospel. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Repentance is a conscious recognition that you are a sinner under God's wrath. But repentance includes now, when you understand your need of turning from your sin, all your sins and your sin of unbelief, to believe in Christ. Turning to a Savior who can forgive your sin, who can make you right with God, who can reconcile you back to God, in whom before that you were an enemy, and now He's making you a friend by the blood of the cross. And then, of course, not only repentance, but there's really two things, is believing. Believing in Jesus alone for salvation. Acts 16.31, repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. True faith is always accompanied by repentance of sin. It's a pursuing of Christ. It's a loving obedience to Christ. It's not enough to believe certain facts about Jesus, as I said in the beginning, because even Satan and the demons believe that there is a true God, but they cannot be saved. They, they don't love God or obey Him. True saving faith always responds in obedience, and that obedience is repentance of your sin and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Bible says, you will be what? Saved. You will be saved. Of course, that includes asking Him. Receive the free gift of eternal life offered by Jesus Christ. Every one of you who are a believer this morning got saved like that. You may not have had all the things I said to you this morning in your mind. But you believed in Jesus. You knew that Jesus was the only way. And that when you came to Him and you believed in Him, and you asked Him to save you? What does Jesus even say in Matthew? Come to Me. You are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. I am gentle and humble in heart. And He says this, And you shall find rest for your souls. The eternal part of you, the part of you created in the image of God, your very souls that are going to either live in hell apart from God or in heaven with God, I'll give rest to your souls. Why? I'm the one who can give rest. I'm the one who can save you. So saving faith means coming to the end of yourself. It means coming to the end of your self-reliance. It means coming to the end of your self-righteousness. It means coming to the end of your self-philosophy of life. It means coming to the end of absolutely everything and trusting absolutely in Christ. Because that's God's solution. 
to our greatest need to be rescued from the wrath of God because of our sin. See, and I want to clarify that is the gospel. Not that ask Jesus into your heart and he will fix your marriage. Not that ask Jesus into your heart and he will make you healthy, wealthy, and fine. Not that ask Jesus into your heart and you will be healed of all your diseases and, and every you know, trouble you have in your life. No, that's not the gospel. That's exactly what Simon, very similar to what was going on with Simon. The gospel is this consciousness and understanding that God opens up your eyes to see you are lost in your sin and in trouble with God. And Jesus Christ is the solution and the answer. And you need to repent of your sin the way you were going, believe in Jesus Christ, and ask him to save you. And do it now. If you haven't done it, time is now. You always stand on the edge of eternity. Every day we stand on the edge of of eternity. Every day. You know, just this past week, I got a phone call. A young man. I don't think he was even 19 years old. Had met him about three or four times. Known his family. Some of you know his family. Troubled young guy. Dropped out of high school. Trying to figure out his life. Uh, Had a very brief introduction to the gospel. We had shared with him one day around our table. But kind of like a free wielding kind of kid, did what he wanted when he wanted. Uh, his father found him hanging, hanged in his garage just past, this past week. He had, he hung himself. Suicide. Why? Because he had no answers. He was hopeless. And there's a lot of other reasons why people do those kind of things. See, see, we're always on the edge of eternity. Obviously, he thought maybe that was the only way out. Satan will lie to you and say, go ahead, take your life. It's the only way out of your problems in this, this life. It's a lie. He will lie you right to death. See, the answer is Jesus Christ. He defeated death and Satan. He will give you eternal life. He will forgive you of your sins. He will make you right with God. We are always on the edge of eternity. We do not know if we're going to wake up tomorrow. We do not know if we're going to step out of this building and get killed. We do not know if we're going to acquire a disease they can't have no cure for. We do not know. We are always on the edge of eternity. That's why when you hear the gospel, the Bible says, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why? It's fresh in your hearing. Take it while it's available to you. We never know how much time we really have left. So we need Christ now. Right now. I pray that all the children, everybody here, understands the gospel and has responded to it and that you know, you know that you're a believer. Because you know what? Church membership starts right here. Believing and receiving the real gospel. That's the only way you can have eternal life. Nobody can give it to you. You can't pay for it. It's by believing. So do you have Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I pray that you do. Let's pray. Lord, I do ask you this morning that you would be with the family of Alex. 
Lord, if any way we can share the gospel in any of the services they have for him, I pray that you would give liberty for us to share with their family and friends the message that will really rescue them and deliver them from all hopelessness and helplessness. And Lord, I pray this morning that the gospel would always ring true in our hearts and thrill us and excite us to the point where we are so thankful for your pity on us. We are so thankful for your mercy displayed toward us in our helplessness and our great need being lost in our sin. Thank you, Lord. You provide to us the directions on how to get to the kingdom of God. And I pray, Lord, all those who know you would rejoice in you and would tell of your salvation to others. All those who do not know you, I pray, Lord, the Holy Spirit of God would not let them alone until they realize that they are standing on the edge of eternity and that they do need Christ. Please, Lord, thank you for this message. Thank you for... It is a... It is good news. It is the greatest news that we'll ever hear in our ears. And I pray, Lord, that we would shout hallelujah when every time we hear the truth of the gospel. And thank you, Lord, that you decided to bring it to us. Thank you, Lord, for opening up our ears and our eyes. Thank you, Lord, for showing us. And thank you, Lord, for keeping us. And I pray, Lord, that we, till the day we die, always be telling people about Christ. Because you're the only way, the truth, and the life. No one can go to the Father except for you. So we thank you, Lord, and we pray you bless our time now as we think about these things and respond to them in our, in our heart. And I pray that you would use them as you see fit in our lives. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.